maybe we'll show you some of the other ones sometime. But, and if you're wondering why I played that segment, it's kind of, you know, the, well, you'll, you'll understand in a moment. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he preached a short sermon. And when he was all done preaching that short sermon, because most of Jesus' sermons were very short. This is actually one of his longer ones, but it's still short. When he was all done, he said this about the sermon. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. In other words, he just said, look, did you listen to me for these last few moments? Because if you did and you put these things into practice, I just gave you the secret to a solid life. That's how important these words are. We've been looking at this sermon, this short sermon, since the first Sunday in April. And after today, we have three more to go, and we'll be done with it. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We'll be all done listening to that, okay? It's been a long time, and we've been calling this sermon this, seven and a half minutes to a rock-solid life, basically because you can read easily the Sermon on the Mount in seven and a half minutes. And these are the words upon which you can build and be rock solid. But, of course, we always remember this. Today, I'm going to remind you, here we go. Let's say it together. I can read the Sermon on the Mount in seven and a half minutes, but to be rock solid, I have to put it into practice every day. Again, again I can't stress this enough. Jesus didn't say, those of you who've memorized my words, those of you who heard me, those of you who know my words, he said, if you put these into practice, you will be rock solid. Nothing will shake you. Bad things will come. They will come. The storms will come. The waves will hit. That happens. But you won't be shaken. You won't fall. Yeah. Wow. Let's put it into practice. So today we start the last chapter seven. And have you ever heard the phrase, we said it many times, Rick Warren's best-selling book, by the way, it's the best-selling book of all times except for the Bible. The Purpose-Driven Life, there is no book that's been written except Scripture that has sold more copies than that particular book. Phenomenal. And the whole book begins with what sentence? You remember what the first sentence is? It's not about me. Exactly. That's the, that's the first sentence right there. It's not about me. Okay? Well, that's true in what he's... But you know what? In today's sermon, this is about me. It is. Chapter 7. If you have your Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. If you have your iPhone or iPad or some other app, you can open it up. Chapter 7, verse 1. Jesus looks at them and says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck of dust out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. That, that, that hits me hard. Okay? Now, perhaps this doesn't apply to you at all, which means it really applies to you. <laughs> okay? But this is, this is about the only time I can think of where Jesus calls me a hypocrite. He, he called Pharisees a hypocrite, but this is the, the only time I can think of when he really looks at me. Because 
I do this. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Okay. First of all, he starts this whole thing by saying what? Don't judge. He gives us a couple of reasons. Let's find out. Now, you get to do a little Bible exposition right here. You're going to do the sermon for me right here. Okay. He gives us a couple of reasons right off the bat of why we shouldn't judge. What are they? Okay. First one is, so that you're not judged because... He says, look, if you judge, you'll be judged. And not only that, the measure you use will be used against you. It's very simple. If you want to be critical about all the people around you, you're saying to God, please, God, be critical with me. Why you would say that is beyond my comprehension. Because most of us say, Father, be merciful to me. He says, great, no problem. Be merciful to the people around you. The measure you use, that's the one that's going to be used against you and me. So the first reason, don't judge. Because... If you do, whatever measure you use is going to be lined up right against your own life. Now, what's the second reason that we shouldn't judge? We all have our own issues. Very good. You guys are pretty good. Maybe you should preach the sermon. Yeah. We all have our own issues, don't we? And we always see everybody around us through those issues. It's like these glasses. And if they're cracked and broken, and I'm cracked and broken, and I'm trying to see you clearly through cracked lenses, I can't, what I think is a flaw in you may not actually be there. I can't really speak with the clarity to tell you what needs to change in all of your lives because I'm broken myself. And he, I love the way he puts it. He says, you know, okay, there's sawdust in other people, but do you understand there's a plank in your own eye? How in the world can you possibly see the problems with it when there's a plank right here? Everything's going to be fuzzy. Everything's going to look weird. You will not be able to see clearly enough. And then he ends this entire passage with this. It's one of the most important spiritual lessons you can ever learn. Here's what he says. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye. Then you see clearly remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is such an important spiritual principle, and it's just this. Ready? Recovery starts with me. Stop worrying about the people around you and fixing them. Work on fixing yourself. Recovery, what kind of recovery? Any kind of recovery. Relational recovery? Issues with a friend? Brother, sister? Spouse? Recovery starts with me. Financial? National. Did you hear me? A lot of talk out there about, boy, what we really need is a recovery. And almost every one of us knows what somebody else out there ought to do about it. Uh, and Jesus would say, no. The way you fix a nation is by fixing yourself. If all the Christians in this country worked on fixing their own issues and their own finances and their own debts, their own relationships, do you think there's any government that could stand against us? They've tried in the past. And every one of them falls in the face of human transformation by the power of Jesus Christ. 
See, there's two rules of life. They're really important in what we're talking about here. Rule number one is this. I can't fix anyone except myself. Why? If that's not part of who you are every day, you need to remind yourself. I can't fix anyone except myself. Okay? Time to time, people will come to me. Remember, years past, other churches, people will come and sit down and say, I don't know. Fix my 14-year-old kid. They're rebellious. Well, what did you want me to do? If they want to rebel, they get to rebel. There's nothing I can do about that. I want to fix my boss because he's really mean. My coworker because, boy, they've got lots of problems. I want to meddle in their life and straighten them all out. The simple truth is you can't fix anybody except yourself. Over the years, I've... Uh, had the privilege sometimes of people coming in for counseling. And I've got to say, I'm not, I'm not a psychological counselor. Don't come to me if you need in-depth help. I just, that's just, there was a time I thought I might even go back to school and pick up a doctorate in that, but then I realized I don't even like it. Okay? So I don't do that kind of thing. I, I do give pastoral counseling. One of the things that I will help you do if you want to come see me is clarify your options. I will clarify your choices for you. But then I'm going to look at you and say, now, which one of these do you want to do? Because it's all on you. I'm going to go home to a, to a wife and kid and a wonderful... And I'm not even going to worry about you. You get to choose which one of these you get to do. And in, this is what happens. Um, women sometimes will come, and in the past they have, and, and they're in an abusive relationship. And they'll sit down, and they'll be pitiful. I understand that, because it's a horrible way to live. Abusive either verbally or physically or both, whatever. And they'll say to me, and I'll say, well, what do you want? Well, I just... I don't want my husband to hit me anymore. Oh, okay. Well, here's your choices. Now, here's your choice. Ready? You can leave him. Get to safety. We'll help you find that place. You can go home, and he's going to beat you. That's who he is. Or you can go home, and the next time he hits you, call the police, have him arrested, and throw him in prison. Now, which one of those three do you want to do? And what will they say? I just want him to stop hitting me. I'm sorry, that's not one of your choices. That's not your choice. If he wants to hit you, he can. Your choice is you can leave him. You can go home and be hit. You can go home and the next time he hits you, call the police, have him arrested, throw him in prison. Which one of those do you want to do? I just want him to stop hitting you. That's not one of your choices. And I've seen time and time again people in those unhealthy relationships Accepting the fact that the only person they're in control of is themselves. Because what makes it unhealthy is everyone's trying to control everybody else. You can't fix anyone except yourself. But you know the second rule of life? Here it is. I can't even do that without the help of Jesus Christ. Okay? The transformation we're talking about, the help to become a better person, the help to, to get out of those unhealthy relationships, the, the help that I need to become financially healthy, relationally healthy, that comes from Jesus Christ. It isn't even within who I am. There is a, a whole chapter in Romans, chapter 7 as a matter of fact. Paul is kind of talking about this struggle that he's had. And in this Romans chapter 7, he's talking about the fact that he knows what's right. He knows what he should be doing. He understands that. 
but for whatever reason, he can't do it. Do you relate to that? That if I were to say to you, what is right? What should you do? You could say, yes, yes, yes. But you find yourself every now and then unable to do it. You wind up doing the thing you know is wrong. You wind up doing the thing you don't even want to do. And you look at yourself and where did that come from? From the message, this is how this whole thing ends. Paul says, I truly delight in God's commands. But it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. There's something in me that doesn't get along with that. Parts of me covertly rebel. And just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything. And nothing helps. I am at the end of my rope. Some of you are right there, aren't you? Some of you are right there. You know what is right. You know it. But there's a part of you that's in rebellion and you can't stop it. And next thing you know, you're doing the things that are not right. He goes on to say this. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is Jesus Christ can and does. He doesn't leave with this whole idea that, that, that we're at the mercy of ourselves and that we can't get better. He has an entire another chapter called Romans chapter 8 where he talks about all the help that is available as we change in Jesus Christ. The only person you can fix is yourself and you can only do that through Jesus. I am a better person because I have walked with Jesus for 35 years or more. I'm not a perfect person. But I'm a whole lot better than I would have been. The direction I was headed, I can't even imagine where I would be. And it isn't because now I'm older. It isn't because I've, I've gone to school and I've paid thousands of dollars to sit in some classroom and listen to professors. It is only because for the last few decades, I have spent every day of my life in the company of Jesus Christ. And he has made those changes a little at a time. And yet some people spend their whole life in the church and they don't get better. Why is that? Well, let me give you three obstacles to recovery. Okay? Here they are. We all use them. If you use them as a continual basis, if you build your life on them, you can go to church every Sunday and not get any better. You're going to be the same person you always were. Here they are. Ready? Three obstacles to recovery. The first one is the blame game. It's everybody else's fault, okay? It's mom's fault, it's dad's fault, it's my stepdad's fault, it's whatever. It's, it's somebody else's fault. What I'm about to tell you is maybe a little depressing, but I believe it, and I think it's true, and I think scripturally tells us true. There really isn't any hope for our country. Now, I know that that sounds defeatist, but I've read the book. Okay? I know what's going to happen at the end. And do you know why there is no hope for our country? Because everybody blames everybody else. Even now, in our situation, whose fault is it? Well, it's our president's fault. If we just had a new president, no, it's, forget it. Nonsense. It's the Democrats. No, it's not. The Republicans. No. Oh, it's those illegal immigrants. No, it's not. Those lousy, rotten unions. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's 
Stop it. We have grown up now and created a culture of blaming. I already told you. If every single Christian in America would forget about trying to change everybody around them and work on becoming people who are holy in the sight of God, getting our own personal finances in order, getting our relationships and our marriages in order, getting our families in order, this government couldn't stand against us. We could change it all. And we wouldn't even have to vote it in. It would come because transformed people would live transformed lives. So before we blame the government, and it's not the government's fault either, Let me ask, are you financially correct? Have you lived in such a way that you give to God what is His? Have you lived in such a way that you have been wise and saved for retirement? Have you borrowed from the future financially to pay for toys in the present? I have. I'm paying the price for it now. We're going to talk about that early next year when we talk and go into our new series, Marriage and Children and Debts. Oh my. That starts in January. And I will be honest with you and to tell you that I made horrible decisions. I'm 57. Now I'm in a very good place. I'm in good shape. I'm probably in better shape than a lot of people in the world. But had I done it correctly from the beginning... My life would be very different. How can I blame a government for overspending when my lifestyle is one of overspending? How can I blame a party? It starts with me. The second obstacle to recovery is this, willpower. And you say, well, wait a minute. Don't we? Well, yeah, there's a certain amount of willpower, but the problem is willpower alone, you think that if I just desired enough, it'll happen. How many of you struggle with your weight? Okay, I do. Some of you have never struggled with your weight at all. I hate your guts. <laughs> okay. I'm back, I'm back. Okay, I was gone for a moment, but I've returned. No, there are, I, and I understand there are some people that just never really struggle with that. And they, I guess they don't quite comprehend. And the rest of us, I think, can relate. Most of us have been on diets. Most of us who struggle with our weight, making sure, you know, we kind of go up and down. I've, I, I'm, I used to love In-N-Out hamburgers when I was growing up in Southern... Okay. And let me tell you the fun thing about In-N-Out hamburgers when you eat them. They're still with you, okay? I still carry my In-N-Out hamburgers with me. There we go. Anyway, how many of you have been on a diet and you say, this time I'm just going to... And pretty soon your willpower breaks down, doesn't it? Willpower alone will not make the changes. The only way this could... You have to change your willpower into God power. You've got to turn to Him and be filled with the Spirit. You've got to rely on Him. 
Why is it that I struggle with my weight? I'll just be completely honest with you and tell you because I have not really let God's power control that yet. Now, I'm 57. I've got, I don't know if I ever will. We'll find out. My father loves me. He's not going to condemn me to hell. I'm just going to be honest with you and tell you, I know that's an area where I'm still trying to use willpower and not God power. Because it's an area in which I continue to struggle and fail. I just love Twinkies. What can I tell you? (laughs) The third obstacle to recovery is this. We call it denial. And this is really what Jesus is talking about. Here we get to it. It's so easy to see the flaws in the people around you. Go ahead, look around you. Go ahead, I dare you. (laughs) Go ahead and tell the people next to you the flaws. No, don't do that, okay? Don't even make a list. It's so easy. And what happens, and that's what Jesus is talking about, what happens is you look around, you see all these flaws, and, and you forget that you are at least as broken as the people sitting around you. We see that. You might say, well... I don't really need recovery. You're talking about people who are addicted. Yeah, I am. You are addicted to sin. And if you do not believe me, you have not read the scripture. The Bible says we all need recovery. Take a look at this passage. Now this is from Romans chapter 8. Therefore... After he's been talking about chapter 7 and how we can't do what's right, and, but by Jesus Christ we can, he says, okay, based on everything I just told you in chapter 7, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man, that's us, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. You are addicted to sin. And the only way out of it is to live according to the Spirit of God. If you can live according to the Spirit of God, you can overcome that addiction to sin. If you do not live according to the Spirit of God, you are a sin addict, and you cannot stop. Now, does that offend you? It's the Word. We're born this way, people. We're born broken. We're born. Now, and when you think of sin and you think of broken, you probably think of axe murders or whatever. It has to do with the fact that we're born selfish. We're born to our own way. We are not born with, a, with a, an inclination, if you will. The old word was propensity. You like that word? <laughs> Towards God and what's right. We're drawn to what's wrong. We're drawn to selfishness. And on your own, you can't break that. We are all sin addicts. But the good news is this. I'm going to show you how to break that addiction. By the time we're done here, I'm going to show you how to break that addiction. It doesn't mean that it will be gone. It means you will learn how to break the addiction, how to live above the addiction. 
how to not allow that addiction to sin to control your life. And you're going to get everything you need to do that in about the next 10 minutes. I've been uh, watching a, a series that was on PBS just recently. I don't know if anybody saw it on Prohibition. You know, I love history. And this was a three-part done by Ken Burns on Prohibition. Fascinating stuff. Because it goes all the way back to the um, mid-1800s when this first whole idea of getting rid of alcohol came out because alcohol was just a huge problem. It's a huge problem because prior to that, everybody drank very weak beer. You had to because the water was so bad, so you drank weak beer. But in the late 1700s and early 1800s, people learned how to distill in mass quantities grains and corns into hard liquor. And to drink a mug of weak beer a couple times a day is one thing. To drink a mug of whiskey two or three times a day is devastating. And so about the middle of the 19th century, about the middle of the 1800s, our entire culture was devastated through alcoholism. Children went around drunk. Families torn apart. Men would work all week long, receive their wages, and immediately head off to the saloon where they would spend it all. It was horrible. And out that came the whole idea of, of prohibition. And so eventually in, the, what was it, 1920... I think it was the 18th Amendment was passed, and suddenly there was no alcohol allowed, and it was just a horrible experiment. Crime went. They actually believed drinking went up during Prohibition, not down. 1933, they passed an amendment to get rid of Prohibition, but it didn't get rid of the problem. The addictions were there, still destroying people. In 1935, a couple of men who had had their lives controlled and destroyed by alcohol, started a group called Alcoholics Anonymous. Because they knew they couldn't lick it. And over the next year or two, they developed 12 steps. These steps are so amazingly biblical. Eventually, not all that long ago, there was a church, Saddleback, down in Southern California, where one of the men, John Baker, who was part of that church, decided to take those 12 steps and really base them on Jesus Christ. Because in actual Alcoholics Anonymous, your God or your higher power can be anything. They don't really name Jesus as a higher power. In the biblical version I'm going to give you that comes out of Celebrate Recovery, they name him. This is not just recovery from alcohol. This is recovery from a life addicted to sin. Here we go. Are you ready? Twelve biblical steps to recovery. Number one, we admitted we were powerless over our addictions and compulsive behaviors that our lives had become unmanageable. You get to the point where you admit you were powerless over your sin. You can't control it. You can't. All you can do is compare it to other people's sin and feel comfortable that at least it's not as bad as the next person's. But you can't control it. And you can't get rid of it. And it's got you. And there's nothing you can do about it. All the willpower in the world will only take you so far. And then you've got it again. 
You've got to admit that there's that plank in your eye. And you can't take it out. It's there. And you can't take it out. Number two. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I love the word sanity. You, you, you might have substituted the word wholeness or whatever, but I love the word sanity. Because to live addicted to sin is insane. Why would you want to live that way? Why would you want to live in a way addicted to the things that will hurt you, hurt the people around you, and separate you for all eternity from the one who loves you so much? That's insane. That's crazy. I want to be restored to sanity. I want the right relationship with my father. And I can't do it on my own. There's only a power greater than me that can actually do it. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Number three. See, up to this point, nothing's really happened. Okay, up to this point, all you've decided is, yeah, I'm addicted to sin. Number two, I can't stop it. But maybe you say to yourself, I like it. I've got no desire to stop it. Number three, we made a decision. Decision. Decision time. To turn our lives and our wills over to the care of God. Doesn't this sound like what somebody told you years ago when they were calling to the altar, you know, those old altar calls? You're a sinner. You can't stop. Make a decision for Jesus Christ. That's all it is right here. We made a decision to turn our lives and our wills over to the care of Father, I, I'm addicted. My, my sinful nature, I can't stop it. I know I can't stop it. I need help to do it, and I've decided to let you do it. There it is. And then number four, we made a searching and fearless moral inventory. I accepted the fact there was a plank I stopped looking at the sawdust and the people around me. And I started listing all my planks. And then I had to go get a new piece of paper. Because I filled the first one up. It isn't just an issue. It's several. And Father, I'm going to be absolutely a fearless moral inventory. Boy, I which means you have to have courage to do it. You have to have courage to say to God, you know what? It doesn't matter how I am compared to the people around me. I know me. I know my planks. Number five, we admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. There was a passage of Scripture, I don't have it up here, but it says, and this is what it's based on, confess your sins to who? To each other. Boy, I tell you what, you better be in a very secure relationship before you do that. But there was a time when there was an entire revival in the world, the Wesleyan revival, that was based very much on a small group of people who were willing to confess their sins. In fact, one of the questions that was asked at their small group every week was this. What did you do this last week that was sin? 
Now, let me invite you to some of their small groups and to say, okay, let's all sit down. Now, what did you do this last week that was sin? Donna Dare, I love you. What did you do? That, how did you sin this last week? Don't tell me. I don't want to. I just, he, he's secure enough to handle it. But you see, they did that. Then they would say this. What did you do or think that you're not certain it was sin? And then you have to come, oh, my word. Accept it. There's a scriptural background for that. So I would tell you this. Look, part of my job as pastor, I'm not a confessor like a priest is. I can't offer you absolution. But I know how to keep a confidence. There are things that I know that people have shared with me that I will take to my grave and no one ever... My wife does not know these things. And she has learned years ago not even to ask. It's a strange thing to be a pastor because in our spousal relationships, we know there is one area that we must keep separate. And I don't do everything really well. But I keep confidences really well. If you need to share something, Sit down and let's talk. I'll hear it. We were, number six, I love this word, entirely ready to have God remove all of these defects of color. <laughs> See, some of us aren't ready. Some of us are kind of ready. Some of us are entirely, there used to be a word we use about sanctification here in the Holiness Church. What was it? Come on. Entire sanctification. Yeah, that's right. What we were just saying is, look, we want to be completely dedicated to God. We were, came to the point where we were, oh, Father, I'm so tired. I'm, I'm entirely ready to have you remove these things. Number seven, we humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Humbly. And, you know, you can't humbly do this while you're focused on the sawdust and planks of the people around you. We made a list of all persons we have harmed and became willing to make amends to them. Number nine, we made direct amends to such people whenever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Could I give you a little help on this one? If While you're thinking about people that maybe you should apologize to or money you should pay back or something that do not follow through with number nine until you've talked to somebody else with wisdom. Okay. Again, you probably don't have the wisdom to decide what you should and shouldn't say. Sometimes people use this just as a way of kind of getting it off their own chest so they'll feel bad. I mean, they'll feel better. It doesn't matter that they devastated a whole other person, ruined a relationship, crushed somebody else. They go, oh, I feel so much better. Well, it, so what? Right. Don't destroy someone else just so you can feel better. If you are struggling with this, again, come see me. We'll talk. Find somebody with wisdom and say, should I share this? I've had people come and do that, and I've looked at them and said, under no circumstances should you share that, or should you say it? The only reason you would do it is so that you feel better, but you'd crush them. Forget it. Number 10, we continue to make personal inventory when we were wrong, prompt. now here it is. 
Here's where most of us who've walked with Jesus Christ for a while fall absolutely flat. There was, so we can go back to that same time. I can think back to February 1971 when I first made that commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. So what has it been now? 40 years. And I remember oh, making that inventory. And, oh, I need this and this and this and this. But you know, it's something about walking with Jesus for four decades. You forget to do this. And go, oh, wait a minute. Maybe it's about time I took that fearless moral inventory again to discover either something new or something I'd denied or something I'd let back in. Number 11, we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and power to carry it. In other words, you're not saying, dear Lord, change all the people around me so that my life is better. You're saying, dear Lord, change me so I can deal with my life. Tonight, one of the classes that George Copeland is going to be teaching will give you the initial tools to do step number 11. It'll teach you how to pray and read. And then finally, having had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. In other words, it's, again, it's not about you. You've now found the steps to sanity. You've found the steps to recover. You've found the steps to no longer be addicted to sin, to live above that addiction. Why would you keep that to yourself? This is the time to say to people around you, it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I am on a new path and a new direction. Because of Jesus Christ. And I want to invite you to come with me. That's the 12 steps. I told you I'm going to give you the exact steps to break your addiction to sin. Will you ever have to stop practicing? Well, tell me something. Those of you who are alcoholics, bless your little hearts. I know you are. Some of you have dealt with this issue and drugs and other things. Are you ever fully recovered from that? That's why we don't call you a recovered alcoholic. We call you a recovering. Did you ever think you were recovered from your addiction to sin? You were a recovering addict. As you learn to walk with Jesus Christ, as you learn to be part of a church, it will hold you up. Next week, I want you to come back because next week you're going to show, I'm going to show you how much Jesus Christ loves you. As soon as he said this, by the way, it's almost, I don't think you can handle another sermon right now, otherwise we go right into it. Because as soon as he said this, bam, he hit them with the best news they could ever possibly hear. Okay? Come back, please. I want you to hear how much Jesus Christ loves you, how important you, but he has to stop by saying, look, he has to start by saying, look, before we get there, you have to understand you're broken. It can be fixed. I can fix the issues. And next week, he's going to tell us exactly why. Because he loves each one of you so much. Doesn't your heart break? Have you ever been related to an alcoholic or drug addict? I've had in my family, my older brother, my uncle, my grandfather died of alcoholism. It's one of the reasons that I, I hold to a kind of a teetotaler position just because my family alcoholism runs in it. My father, my, my older brother is brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. I'm no slouch in this world and he makes me look like a dummy. 
and his life has been totally destroyed. He lives in the basement of some old house in Salt Lake City because of what alcohol has done to him. Doesn't it break your heart when you see that? Don't you wish you could reach into them and say, man, let me help, let me fix you. Now you know how Jesus feels. When he looks at the people he loves, he says, let me fix you. Let me reach into your heart. Make it right. Set you on the right path. You can't do it on your own, Jesus says. I can do it for you. I can't help my older brother. I can't fix him. Jesus can look into all of our hearts and say, I can fix you. Give me your life. Father, the Jesus started this, or was in the middle of the sermon, and we call it the start of chapter 7. He started with, boy, this is hard stuff for us, because... Um, when we're addicted, one of the first things that we do is deny that addiction. And then we don't want to face it. And when we do face it, it hurts. That's true for anything. But Father, the good news, and it's the good news this morning, Father, it's the great news we're going to talk about next week, is you loved us so much that you sent Jesus so he could reach into our hearts and break that addiction as we surrender to him. So Father, in the next few moments... We're going to give you time. Holy Spirit, we're going to give you the opportunity. We know that you're not going to come with condemnation. You even said that. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the beginning of chapter 8 in Romans, Father. We know that. You're not here to condemn us. You are here to heal us. You are here to, to help us overcome. It always has to start with kind of that little... Slap in the face that says, look, you need this. We know that, Father. That's how we are. We have to, we have to get our attention. But, Father, the next step is just so you come into our lives and you heal and you bring recovery. Do that now, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Mav is going to come and lead us in what we call...